stand and let us worship the Lord together this morning. Jesus, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other bounds I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all. Isaiah chapter 40 reminds us of how awesome our God is and why we worship him. It says, to whom, this is God talking, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, 
says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Look up at the sky, the stars. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. We serve a holy God who is beyond all comparison. There's nothing in all of creation that you can use to compare God to. He is that wonderful. Amen? And that is why we, it is a privilege here to be with you this morning to worship. And we are glad that each one of you is here. If you would, would you please take out your worship folder that I hope you grabbed when you walked in. In this worship folder, you'll find all sorts of information about things that are going on in the church. You also find this checking card. And so if you would take a quick moment, it'd be a big blessing if you filled, it up, filled out that checking card for us. You can do it with the piece of paper or you can do it on your phone with our handy dandy church app. And on the check-in process, there's also a place to put prayer requests and praises. We love to pray alongside with uh, uh, you and with you. So please take a moment to fill that out if there's anything we can be praying for. At the end of the service, you can drop in, drop off your check-in card in either of the white tables at either entrance as you leave. And if you're visiting with us today, we are very thankful for you. So glad that you're here, and we want to extend a special welcome to you. If you have any questions about the church, I know a lot of the people around you would be happy to answer, but you don't know anybody if you're visiting. So we also have a welcome desk just outside these double doors where you could go and have questions answered. They'd love to meet you there. We have extra um, like visitor booklets we can give you, and we'd love to give you a gift. So we're just to say what we're so thankful for you, for you. Now, we have a video that we'd like to show you, so if you could turn your attention to the screen. Hello, Newcastle family. As you've all noticed, we're in the fall season, and with the changing of the season, brings us a unique opportunity to provide outreach ministry to our communities. Now, a way we can do this is through the Halloween holiday. Halloween is the one night a year that can get people outside walking through their neighborhoods and planning a stop at your door. This is where you come in, Newcastle. You can pick up your trick-or-treat gospel supplies to hand out this upcoming Halloween on the tables located in the North and South Commons. And remember, you don't have to be home to hand them out. Placing the supplies in a bowl on your porch can be just as effective. Oh man, that's an awesome video and a good reminder that Halloween's right around the corner. It's Reformation Month too. Woohoo! And so, what everyone is anticipating at least most kids are is candy and trick-or-treating right and this is just a neat gospel opportunity um, that it's a chance for us to express and obey the great commission and it's one of the easiest ways you have people coming to your door looking for something you give them what they want but you can also give them what they need and so this is just a great opportunity so at the end of the service as you're leaving either entrance check out that table that's by the door and pick up a bunch of gospel tracks and and be prepared to give them out. And so thankful for Justin and, and Amy there in that video and them inspiring and motivating us, stirring us to love and good deeds through that. But before we continue singing together, would you please bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, we are just so thankful, so thankful to be here together this morning. It is a gift and a privilege. I hope none of us takes it for granted, but it is a privilege to come into your presence and to worship you 
you who are beyond all comparison, who are holy. Father, you are far beyond our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your decisions, your judgments, they are just, they're inscrutable. There is no error or wrong in any of them. You have mapped out each one of our paths in our life. You have ordained all things to come to pass, and each one of them is for our good to make us more like your son. And we thank you, Lord, that you have saved us, that you protect us, and that you keep us to the end. I pray that you would help put a song in each one of our hearts this morning, that, that you would put joy and uh, so that we would have a song of praise come from our lips this morning as we sing not only to you but to each other. And I pray that you would continue to transform our church through the preaching of your word. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you please stand as we continue to bless the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful where streams of abundance flow blessed be your name blessed be your name when i found in the desert place though i walk through the wilderness blessed be your name every blessing you pour out i'll turn back to praise when the darkness closes in lord still i will say blessed be the name of the lord blessed be your name blessed be the name of the lord blessed be your glorious name Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. Be the name of the Lord. 
Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your tempter would prevail he will hold me fast I could never keep my home through life's fearful path for my love is often cold he must hold me fast he will hold me fast he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will hold me fast those he saves are his My soul be lost, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me. He will hold me fast For my life He bled Christ will hold me fast Justice has been Say 
will hold me fast. You may be seated. The welcome to the worship of the Lord today. Thankful to have everybody here. Um, Real quick before we get started, I just want to say a big thank you to all of you that came out yesterday for the the work day here. Uh, God has given us a a beautiful campus here, but it takes a lot of of hands to steward it well. And so thankful for everybody who came out, got a lot of work done, Uh, makes a big difference. We truly appreciate, appreciate your help. So at this point, we're going to dismiss for Children's Church. So this would be ages three to kindergarten. Uh, dismiss to go to Children's Church. If you head out the back, I'm going to take them upstairs. We've got a group of teachers that are ready to help them learn the gospel in an age-appropriate way. Great group of people up there. So they'll be in good hands. So thankful this morning. Uh, to have Dustin and Becca King with us. They are our sent go partners serving with SIM in Ecuador. Uh, They're back in the States for a couple of months on home assignment. Uh, We'll be here, I believe, through the the beginning of December. So they're gonna come up now, give a a short update of what's going on in their life and ministry. Um, They gave an update here during the ADE hour. Again, they're here, so uh, catch up with them as you see them around, but we'll let them talk. Good morning, Newcastle. It's always such a privilege to be able to come back every few years and share with you about what God has been doing in our lives and in our ministry. Dustin and I recently had an opportunity to visit um, a wall in Ecuador. It's called the Wall of Tears. Is named the Wall of Tears because it was built by political prisoners and petty thieves. And the villagers uh, several uh, miles away said that they could hear the men crying as they built this wall. Thousands of men died handling the sharp lava rocks in the oppressive coastal heat. A two-hour walk from the nearest village, the only purpose that this wall has is to cause suffering and pain. As Dustin and I looked at this pile of rocks, it seemed to us to be a symbol of our life and ministry over the last term, a symbol of loss and grief. However, because we know God's redemptive story, it also reminds us of the one thing that we want you to know and that we want to remind ourselves and that we want the people of Loja to know. In the midst of brokenness and soul-crushing sorrow, God is our rock and our salvation. I'd like to share with you some examples on how we saw this theme working in our ministries over the last four years. The church in Loja hosted a listening day for Venezuelan refugees. We listened as they told us stories of assault, hunger, and even torture. A 20-year-old man who had faced torture and who had witnessed the murder of his father and several of his friends gave his life to Jesus after hearing the gospel. God became his rock and his salvation. The Mustard Seed Church encouraged us to set up a food ministry from our home as all of the non-essential businesses closed during COVID. 
A young father knocked on our door. He was almost crippled from a previous automobile accident that had taken the life of his wife. Now the pandemic had taken his job. Dustin and I prayed with him, worshiping God for his goodness, even when we couldn't see it. In spite of our prayers for healing, Joel, a young man that we had been training to take over the financial ministry, died from COVID. And we know that he was greeted in heaven by a good God who sacrificed his only son so that Joel would have eternal life. When a family called us in crisis and the mother said, God is punishing us, we said to her, no, God took the punishment for you because he is very good. When the pastor of our church was hospitalized with COVID and then developed stomach cancer, when our brother in Christ, Pachito, lost his second leg, when our coworkers were in a severe accident that totaled our only ministry vehicle, when our world was chaotically falling down around us, we held one thing to be dearly true. And we know that when we speak to others, we're speaking to people who often are holding on to their own suffering. We want you to know that God is good. I'd like us to look again at this pile of rocks, this wall of tears that represents sorrow, punishment, pain, and loss. But this time we're going to look at it through God's goodness. Psalm 62, 5 through 7 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Newcastle, we want to let you know that the world offers nothing but difficult times and suffering, but God offers hope and salvation. Thank you for allowing us to share this very message to the Ecuadorians the last 12 years. And we appreciate you to keep praying. We need a vehicle now for where we are headed now is more rural and uh, less uh, public transportation. So we appreciate that. Um, we did sh share last Sunday's um, school session, but if you missed that, um, contact your life group leader and have them invite us because we'd love to share more of what's going on in Ecuador with you. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for that. It is some sobering things to hear. So if you would, bow with me. I'll turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, those are heavy things to hear. We've been through a pandemic here also, um, but our lives are very different, um, often even comfortable as we moved through it. And so to hear of, of a, a challenging year in Ecuador brings us to our knees before you, Father, realizing that you are a God who is not surprised by the fallenness of this world, it's the reason that Jesus came, because this world is, is broken by sin. And so we lift up uh, those people in Ecuador and really across the world um, who, who are in challenging positions, who, who deal with uh, brokenness but without hope. We're so glad to know as we sit here today that there is hope. I pray that you'd make us that you'd make Dustin and Beck continue to make them a people of hope, a people that radiate the fact that, that we do not live without a future hope. We're a people who can be joyful in the face of 
difficult circumstances because we know you. We know you are good. We know that you have a plan. We know that we are never out of your hands, even when in our humanness we can feel like we are. So pray for Dustin and Becca and, and their work. Pray for rest while they're here yet. Uh, pray that you would continue uh, to work them into that community in Ecuador, to, to help them to, to deepen relationships and grow with people there, to be able to take the gospel to places that, frankly, as a church, we cannot. We know that you use your people to advance your gospel in this world and pray that you continue to work that uh, through Dustin and Becca. Pray for that vehicle. Father, we know that you have chosen to use your people to raise the funds for your ministry. So I pray that you would work in us uh, and in other supporters of them, raise the money for this vehicle, make the vehicle available. We know that you're a God and you are capable. You've chosen to work through us. And so I pray that, that your people would respond. We have needs here at home, so we do bring some of those to you this morning. We have some surgeries, some folks who are recovering. We have some folks who have lost loved ones. Again, Father, this is, is a world that's filled with grief and pain. But you are hope. You come and you say, this is only for a little while, that there's a place prepared. I have a place prepared where there are no tears, where no one is missing where all is love. And so I pray for your comfort for the sick and the hurting, that they could understand uh, that truth. Pray for uh, safety for farmers. We have a lot of farm families here and farm adjacent families. Uh, lots going on out there, uh, big equipment on the roads and in the fields. And I pray for your, uh, for your hand of protection over them. Grateful for a good harvest so far. Uh, pray that that would continue Father, we pray for Josh Gerber and his family as they're making preparations to move and come here to fill a pastor position. Lots of things going on there. Pray for your protection and wisdom uh, as they make those decisions. Pray for Pastor Kevin this morning as he teaches us from Ephesians about how to live out Christ's love in our everyday walk. So thankful for the, the clarity of the word that he brings to us. So our partner church today is East White Oak and Carlock. We're so thankful for them, for their elders, and for Pastor Scott. Their interaction with us has been sweet and helpful. So I pray that you'd bless them today as they worship, prosper their ministry and their community. Pray that that church would be a beacon for you, for their elders as they, as they lead, and for their community as they grow together, worshiping you. I'm going to pray yet for the, the CJs and Topaz, another sent uh, go partner from here. Uh, they were here with us a couple of months ago, and, and thankfully they had a good trip to, back to Topaz where they serve. Pray for your provision as they settle back into life and the rhythms there for the people of that city. We know that there's very few believers there. And so there's much work to be done. We trust it to you. I pray for opportunities to continue, for um, the CJs to connect and to uh, encourage people. Pray for the humanitarian needs of those folks as the economy struggles and goods are starting to disappear from shelves. Father, I pray that the hard circumstances of life would turn those folks in Topaz to, to the hope that is you. 
that they could see in, in the CJs as they serve, that there's a hope that goes beyond the immediate, immediate circumstance. I pray for their kids as they begin school. And again, for the many people there who don't know you, who don't in a world that is shaky and seems like it's falling apart, uh, where, where would we turn if it wasn't the eternal God? So I pray that you'd re continue to reveal yourself and bless their ministry there. Father, we've asked a lot of things, put a lot of things before you, and it makes us realize that we can't do anything without you, that you provide everything. And so we trust you with these, with these requests. We look forward to your answer. We know that you're a God who keeps your promises, that you work things for, for the eternal good of those who are called to serve you. And so we trust you with it today. Continue to bless our worship. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you please stand again with us as we sing about our hope in the rock of Christ.
bring glory to the name of Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to pray together. Well, let's continue our worship now by opening your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 will be focused on the first six verses today as we compare true love to counterfeit love from Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We would love to give you a copy of God's Word as our gift to you today. And before we read scripture, just want to kind of review a little bit what we've covered in the study of Ephesians so far. Uh, you will remember that Ephesians has six chapters in it. And Ephesians is neatly divided into two halves. The first half, chapters one to three, talk all about what God has done for us in our salvation. It's a glorious study in those first three chapters of the amazing saving grace of God for us. Now we're in the second half, chapters four to six, and those chapters are focused on how Christians ought to live in response or in a way that is proper or worthy of the gospel realities that God has given us in Christ. So today we're in chapter five, which is right in the middle of this second half of the book. And chapter 5 calls Christians to walk or to live in love and in wisdom together. But we don't want to lose sight of the big picture as we're kind of walking through this passage verse by verse. Remember the main point of Ephesians, the main truth that Paul's trying to convince these Christians in Ephesus is that God has united us in his grace together so that being united in his grace, we would love one another all for the praise of his glory. God is building up his church. He's united us all together in his grace for his glory so that we would live in love and in a community and a unity of love together. So as we read through Ephesians 5 now, just listen carefully for how God is calling Christians to live different than non-Christians. So how is God calling believers to live and to look and to act and to talk differently than non-Christians? 
This is a very, very relevant and convicting text for all of us. So for those who are able, I'd invite you to stand and honor the public reading of God's word as I read from the ESV, as we read uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Ephesians 5, 1 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Please pray with me now. Father, there's such glorious gospel truth in this text and there's such strong warnings. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need your help. I pray that you would purify your church today. Please, Father, purify me. Purify us through the preaching of your word. I pray that your spirit would just set captives free from lust. Compel us as your church in your love. Pour your love into our hearts through the power of your spirit. Even as we listen to the preaching of your word, I pray, Father, do a miracle. Do a miracle. Some, somebody here has just come to church today because they, that's just their habit, that's the routine, but I pray that today would be a miracle, that they would leave here forever changed because of the power of your gospel, because of the power of your spirit, because of the power of your word. You're an amazing God. Purify us. Give us humble and open hearts of faith, we ask. Amen. Well, have you ever been told that you look like one of your parents? Maybe you, uh, you see a friend that you haven't seen for decades or years, and, and they're like, man, you're just really reminding me of your mom, or you're really reminding me of your dad. It's not surprising that children grow up looking to be like their parents. After all, we share the same genes. Some people even have the ability, I've noticed, that they can see the parents immediately in a newborn baby. They'll say, look, this baby has dad's nose, or, oh, she has mom's eyes, right? It's quite common for children to resemble their parents, especially the longer that they live. Uh, there's, a, there's actually a hilarious TV commercial right now on TV. It's from an insurance company called Progressive, and it says, 
progressive can't keep you from becoming your parents. Have you seen that? Jody and I always crack up when we watch that TV commercial because, frankly, we see all the ways that we're becoming parent-like in our own life. But it's not just new homeowners that turn into their parents over time. Truly, all of us tend to look and act and behave like our parents the longer we live. So the next time you see that commercial from Progressive Insurance on TV, I want you to remember Ephesians chapter 5. Because actually, Ephesians 5 calls Christians to become more like our heavenly Father. That's right. Once God saves us from sin, we now actually want to talk like our Heavenly Father, walk like our Heavenly Father, resemble our Heavenly Father more and more over time. This is what verse 1 teaches us today, right? Therefore, be imitators of God as His beloved children. So the longer we live as Christians, the more our actual living should resemble Jesus. Our walk, our lifestyle should literally trace the pattern of Christ-like love so that when others see how we live and they see how we love, they can better understand the love of Jesus. Our walking and our talking should reflect and make visible the very love that God has poured into our hearts through Christ. So this entire section today from verse 1 to verse 6 is all about reflecting true love versus false love. Verses 1 to 2 call Christians to uh, walk in Christ's love. And then verses 3 to 6 give a very strong warning against living in the world's lust. So the main point of this paragraph is that God's children must live by Christ's love, not the world's lust. Church, we must never confuse love and lust. After all, when we live by Christ's love, we imitate or we make visible the nature of our Heavenly Father. But if we are living according to selfish lust, then we are making visible or imitating the, the devil. We are showing ourselves to be sons of disobedience, the text says. So today's sermon is very, very hyper-relevant for all of us who live in such a sexually charged culture that we live in. Every one of us needs to sit up straight this morning, get our pen out, get our notes ready, have the Bible open in front of us, and open our hearts to pay attention to what God's Word has to say in these transforming gospel truths and these very strong and urgent warnings that we need to hear from His Word. These verses are actually continuing Paul's illustration of the, the truth that he started in chapter 4. Remember in chapter 4, Paul calls all Christians to live out a lifestyle of repentance so that Christians would be progressively changing and growing over time to live more consistent with our new identity in Christ. 
So we're going to walk through these verses today using the same three-part pattern of repentance that we learned in Ephesians chapter 4. We will first consider the Christ-like love that Jesus calls us to put on. And then we're going to consider the selfish lust that God commands us to put off. And finally, we're going to drill down into verse 4 to observe how our minds must be renewed with an attitude of gratitude if we're going to ever overcome selfish lust with Christ-like love. So let's begin now in verse 1 where we learn that Christ-like love is the proper pursuit of purity. A pure heart is a heart that is resting in God's love for you and then making God's kind of love visible to others. Now, I, re I recognize that the word purity is not in our text this morning. But if you look at, the, if you look at this passage, he's comparing God's kind of love, Christ-like love, with impurity. So this is a study of purity and impurity, true love and false love. And I purposely introduced the word purity because Christ-like love equals purity. And I believe we'll better understand what Paul's teaching in this text if we first understand and have a right definition of biblical purity. So I want you to listen because I tend to believe many of us have been taught an incomplete definition of purity. Uh, most of us have been raised in a culture that has reinforced an external, short-sighted, incomplete definition of purity. So if I would call you up here to join me behind the pulpit today and I'd say, can you, can you define purity for us? What is biblical purity? What would you say? What does it mean to be pure? What does it mean to live pure? You say, well, pure maple syrup is, with, is syrup that doesn't have any contamination. It's syrup that doesn't have any pollutants. Okay, so catch this. Contrary to what many of us have been taught, Biblical purity is not sexual abstinence. Lean over to the person next to you and tell them, purity does not equal abstinence. Okay, ready? Purity does not equal abstinence. That's right. Listen, biblical purity is more about what you are saying yes to than what you will ever say no to. Purity is more about what your heart wants than about what your body does. Purity is not just about abstaining from sin. Purity is all about loving God. <laughs> Biblical purity is all more about the put on than it ever is about the put off. So Christian abstinence movements are well-intended, but they're woefully incomplete. Because if you wrongly define purity as abstinence, 
It will negatively impact how a person understands God, how they understand their sexuality, how they understand marriage, and how they understand holiness itself. You say, Kevin, can you help me understand that? Yeah. So often in the Christian church, my experience has been that singles have been taught, say no to sex, say no to sex, say no to sex, say no to sex, until you get married. And then you can say yes to sex. But listen, that is not a biblical definition of purity. That is just delayed gratification. Purity is never about what is outside you. Purity is about what is inside you. So purity is not about what you say no to. Purity is all about saying yes to Jesus. Biblical purity is about treasuring Christ more than anything without any contamination, without any defilement or any pollution of my love for Christ. So singles are pure when they are finding their satisfaction in Jesus alone, saying yes to whatever Jesus wants. And married people are pure when they are treasuring Jesus more than they treasure anything else in this world and they are saying yes together to what Jesus wants. It's just like what Jesus taught in Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A pure heart is a heart that is saying yes to seeing Jesus and savoring Jesus and treasuring Jesus most. So biblical purity is always about what your heart loves. Purity is loving God with a unpolluted love. So regardless of your marital status, pure relationships are those relationships that are uncontaminated by selfishness, uncontaminated by lust, and instead entirely devoted to loving God. So a life of love is the essence of a life of purity. Christ-like love is the proper pursuit of purity. If you're going to be pure in this world of selfish lust, then your life must be characterized not by what you say no to, but your life must be characterized by an increasing love for Jesus and an increasing love for others. That's the definition of purity. So let's see how Paul argues for this now, starting in verse 1. He says, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, verse 32 of chapter 4. In light of how God has shown so much grace to you, in light of how much God has forgiven you of your sins, therefore, be imitators of God as his beloved children. Now let this sink in, church. God loves you. Do you see it in verse 1? Dear Christian, you are the beloved child of God. Don't race past this staggering truth. God, our all-powerful creator, God, our holy and righteous eternal judge, God himself loves you. God doesn't just tolerate you. God doesn't just put up with you. God loves you. He's the perfect parent. 
And he loves every single one of his children with a holy and a perfect love. I mean, slow down and let that sink in this morning. This is great news, church. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that God actually loves you? God is for you. God cares about you because God loves you. He's so happy when he sees more of himself in you. He loves you. He wants you to be full of joy with all the eternal delights of Christ that he has lavished upon you. He loves you so much of your sinful anxiety and your sinful anger in this world would be put away if we just remembered that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. God loves you perfectly and completely. And once you recognize that your identity has been changed by God's personal love for you, everything changes in your life. You're now freed from this performance treadmill, this this people-pleasing treadmill where you're living just to try to get other people to like you. (laughs) Why, Why do I need other people to like me? God loves me. Once you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God truly loves you, you are free. You're now free to really love others regardless of how they respond because you know that God loves you, cares for you. Now you're free to look like God and talk like God and act like God whenever you walk in purity with others. You say, well, but pastor, I, I, I don't really know how to love other people like God loves me. I mean, I, well, verse two, verse two explains what Christ-like love towards others looks like. First, we are to love just as Christ loved us. How did God, how did Jesus love sinners? Well, he gave himself up for us, meaning that Jesus died for you. So that now you also can sacrifice yourself for the eternal good of others. You see, biblical love is far more than just a warm, fuzzy affection or tenderness of our heart. Biblical love is sacrificially laying down my own desires for the eternal good of the other person. So purity is always sacrificial. If it doesn't cost you anything, then it's not loving. Now, I, I, I tend to think that somebody here is still caught back on this thought that God loves me. I haven't got past that. How can I know? How can I know that God loves me? Because some of us in this room have had life experiences and we've been betrayed and we've been hurt. Some of us have been abused. And we've been told by our life experiences, no one will ever love you again. You're not lovable. You've experienced too deep a pain 
too deep a betrayal. And the question before you is, how do I know that God of the universe loves me? I can believe that he loves somebody else, but how can I know that he loves me? Well, dear friend, you can know that Jesus loves you because Jesus died for you. Jesus proved that he loved you when he died on the cross to pay for your sins. Because he loved you, verse 2 says, Jesus gave himself up for you. That means Jesus voluntarily sacrificed his life. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it because he loved you. He died in your place on the cross so that your sin penalty could be paid for by his substitutionary death. He didn't have to die, but he chose to take your place and satisfy the penalty that your sins deserved. To die in your place, he sacrificially laid down his own life for your eternal good. He loved you. Oh, dear friend, do you believe this? Do you believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him doesn't need to perish but can have everlasting life? Sinner, you can know that God loves you because while you were still a sinner, God sent Jesus to die in your place. So you know what that means? That means you don't have to become religious before God will love you. You don't have to clean yourself up in order for God to love you. You simply must believe, believe that God already demonstrated his love for you by sending Jesus to die in your place. Jesus died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. And then you know what happened three days after he was in the grave? You would say, well, I think he started to stink. He probably did. But three days later, he rose from the dead miraculously giving you a brand new identity so that now purity is possible for you because of your faith union with the resurrected Christ. So will you believe that Jesus died and rose again to make you pure? Will you believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay for your sins and to give you everlasting life in his love? Paul says, this is the kind of life that is worthy or proper for our calling. Christ-like love pursues purity, which always resembles the nature of our heavenly Father. And then notice the end of verse 2. I don't want to skip past this. It says, Christ gave himself up for us, and you might underline this, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That means Christ's love for us wasn't ultimately based on our loveliness or something inside of us. Christ loved us by dying on the cross to please God. Jesus saved you for God so that we should also love others for the glory of God. Jesus' love for us was grounded not in our own loveliness, but in Jesus' love for God. The only motivation strong enough to bring about Christ-like love and purity in this world is the glory of God. 
So if you want to imitate God, you want to live out your new identity as one of God's beloved children, anchor your love for others in your worship of God. We love other sinners sacrificially for their eternal good, not fundamentally because they deserve our love, but because God deserves our worship. So whenever you give yourself up for the eternal good of others, your love and your purity is a sweet-smelling aroma of worship that is pleasing to God. So Christians ought to put on Christ-like love because Christ-like love is the proper pursuit of purity. Verses 3 to 6 now tell us what to put off, namely selfish lust, which is perverted and will be punished. So, so Christians who are tracing the pattern of Christ-like love with their life Uh, Christians are going to be focused on sharing God's love with others, personally sacrificing for others' eternal good, all out of a desire to bring glory to God. That's how Christians are going to be acting and resembling like Jesus. But verse 3 says sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So the, so the verse is very clear. Sexual sin is not appropriate for God's saints. Not appropriate. Now, when you see the word saints, don't, don't think some uber-zealous, professional, super-holy Christian. Saints is just Paul's favorite word in the New Testament to describe Christians. It literally means those whom God has made holy, those whom God has set apart for his own special people out of humanity. So saints in the New Testament is the definition of all true Christians. Every true Christian is a saint by this definition. So when verse 3 says that these sins should not even be named among you, It means there should never be an occasion when sexual sin is ever appropriate for the Christian. Never. These sins should be so far removed from Christian experience, there should be never a reason for anyone to associate these kinds of sins with God's people. I don't know about you, but I think we need to repent. I know I do. We must repent of any hint of these sins in our lives. You say, well, what are these sins? Sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. Sexual immorality typically refers to sexual sins like fornication, adultery, incest, homosexuality. And all impurity is next. Well, all impurity is actually a more general, broader word that goes beyond outward behavior and now includes sins of the mind. So all impurity includes sexual fantasies, pornography, sexually charged entertainment, self-gratification. All these sins are the opposite of purity. 
because they failed to treasure Jesus as my highest desire. They failed to show that Jesus is my greatest love. And instead, they are expressing a covetousness or a greediness, an uncontrollable appetite for more, a more, more of what I don't rightfully possess. See, sexual sin comes from a greedy mind. You see that in the text, right? It comes from covetousness, a greedy mind. And since our mouth always speaks our mind, verse 4 continues to say that obscene speech is not appropriate for God's heirs. Let there be no filthiness. Filthiness is shameful, uh, disgraceful, indecency of any kind. Nor foolish talk. That's silly words that are lacking morals. Think about um, the potty mouth. Gutter talk. That's foolish talk. Foul language. Nor crude joking. That refers to the distasteful humor of sarcastic wit that is able to turn every conversation about anything into a dirty joke. Crude joking. And all of this lustful talk is out of place. It doesn't belong for those who have inherited the kingdom of Christ and of God according to what verse 5 says later. Joint heirs with Christ should never ever use humor or obscenity as a cover for our selfishness and our pride. After all, verse 5 says, For you may be sure, you may be certain of this, that all this selfish lust is perverted and will be punished. Everyone who is a sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Translation, self-love is a worship disorder that deserves hell. This is a strong warning, church. Verse 6 continues the strong warning saying, let no one deceive you. He's writing to Christians here. Let no one deceive you, Christian, with empty words. Do not let anyone try to convince you that your sexual fantasies or your pornography watching or your dirty joking or your lustful selfishness is not that big of a deal. There's always going to be false Christians who are trying to convince true Christians that we can live by selfishness and still be covered by God's grace. God has forgiven you. You've you received an inheritance now and, and your inheritance is safe and secure in Christ and so therefore you can live however you want to live in sin, the liar says, and you can live however you want to live in sin and you'll never lose your eternal inheritance. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Do not be deceived, church. The word is strong. I'm receiving it just like I'm pointing it at you. Because of these sexual sins, these selfish sins, these selfish lusts, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Self-love is idolatry. It's, it's, a, it's a worship disorder because it's, a, it's greedy. It's, it's saying, I want what I want more than I want Jesus. Jesus deserves my highest worship, but I'm going to worship what I want because this is what I believe is going to make me happen. It's a self-love worship disorder. It's, uh, it's, 
And that's how Satan's children, that's how unbelievers, the sons of disobedience live rather than the beloved children of God himself. Church, this text is calling me and it's calling us to put off all selfish lust that is perverted and will be punished and instead allow our minds to be renewed by thanksgiving. After all, the end of verse 4 teaches that thanksgiving, thanksgiving is a purifying power. This is so profound. Oh, I want you to wash your mind and your mouth with this truth. Take courage this morning. Take courage, church. I know that warning is strong. But remember, there's no such thing on this earth as a sinless Christian. There's no such thing on this planet or in this room as a perfectly pure Christian. None of us are perfect. You say, well, Kevin, I, I, I struggle with lust. I do too. I'm tempted with lust. This is a real thing for us. So you're saying, are you saying, I'm not saved if I'm tempted with lust? The scriptures are saying this. If your life is characterized by a pattern of selfish lust, then you have no reason to believe that you are saved. Doesn't matter if you've prayed a prayer, doesn't matter if you've signed a card, doesn't matter if you claim Christ as your Savior. If your life is characterized and looks more like the sons of disobedience than the sons of God, then you have no reason to believe you're saved. But it's not teaching that we don't ever sin. Remember, David was a man after God's own heart, and David sinned with Bathsheba in the sin of sexual sin of adultery. The reason we know David was truly saved is because he repented of that sin. So God calls the church and he gives strong warnings in this passage so that, not that we would try to say that we have to be sinless because there's no such thing as a sinless Christian on this planet. But over time, because of God's grace, which is at work within us, we should be sinning less and less and less over time, right? Christ-like love is the proper pursuit of purity for all who are truly born again. And God even uses strong warnings like verses 5 and 6 in today's text to awaken true believers from out of the deception of their sin so that they would repent and come back to the path of purity. Part of God's keeping program is His warnings. The warning is part of God's keeping of his children's souls. So here's the million dollar question. How does a heart move from perverted lust to pure love? How does, how does a heart go from being controlled by selfish lust to being controlled by Christ-like love? And the end of verse 4 gives this surprising answer. Let there be thanksgiving. After all, greed expresses lust, but gratitude expresses trust. Instead of our mouths being full of all kinds of flippant speech or humor that dishonors God, Christians ought to be known as the people who are the most thankful people on the planet, constantly giving thanks always in all things to God. 
overflowing in gratitude for all that God has done for us because we believe that God is good and God is in control. Greed expresses itself in lust, but thanksgiving expresses itself in trust. After all, lust feeds pride, but gratitude feeds humility. And God gives grace to the humble, doesn't he? Sexual sin, sexual speech, they're all expressions of a greedy self-indulgence. It's the worship disorder of pride that believes that I deserve what I want, how I want it, when I want it, no matter what God says. That's pride. That's selfish pride that uses filthy humor to try to cover my own insecurities. It's pride that uses filthy humor to try to build up myself at the expense of tearing others down. That's all pride. But thanksgiving grows in the garden of humility. A thankful heart knows that I don't deserve anything from a holy and a righteous God that is good. But God has given me so much that I didn't deserve. Oh, how my heart overflows with praise and thanksgiving and gratitude to God for all that he has given me in Christ. You see, at the core, pride celebrates me, but gratitude celebrates God. Thanksgiving is all about worship. And it's impossible, it's impossible to keep serving self while you're sincerely worshiping Jesus as your highest treasure. So thanksgiving is a purifying power because it pulls the roots of sin up by the very root. It gets underneath sin. It's impossible for a thankful heart to be tempted with lust because thanksgiving pushes selfishness away, choosing instead to humbly delight in the bounty of God's undeserved grace that has been made to, known to us through the person and work of Jesus. So do you want to live more by Christ-like love than selfish lust? Then let there be thanksgiving. Oh, thank God, church. Thank God for your new identity that Jesus truly loves you that you have been made a child of God and that he proved his love for you by dying on the cross in your place so that now all your sins, not just most of your sins, every single one of your sins, even that one sin that you can't believe, all of your sins have been forgiven. Thank the Lord for that. Thank God for your eternal inheritance. Christ is your inheritance. Thank him for that. It's been given to you by amazing grace. Thank God for his spirit by whom you can now walk in love towards others. Thank God for the biblical warnings like verses 5 and 6 in today's text which help to redirect our steps away from the deceptive lies of lust back onto the glorious path of love and purity. After all, God's children must live by Christ's love, not by the world's lust. And only a heart that is thankful to God, sincerely thankful to God, will actually rest in God's love and pursue a life of purity. So today, church, I've been praying for me and for us that today would be a day of repentance. That today would be a day where we would repent and turn from our selfish lust and instead live thankfully 
as God's beloved children. This perhaps might be one of the greatest secrets in all of Scripture, that thanksgiving is the opposite of sin. It's our pure worship of Christ that will always drive away the impure worship of self. So let's fuel our gratitude and worship of Christ by renewing our minds today with the joyful gospel realities of verses 1 and 2. Christian, you are God's own beloved child. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you in your place out of love for you. You truly lack nothing that you need in order to truly be satisfied in God. God's grace has cleansed your mind. God's grace has cleansed your heart from the inside out. So let's put off this selfish perversion of lust and let's put on this Christ-like love of purity together. Now, if you're listening right now, And you feel something inside of you. You, you, you. you are yearning. Your heart is yearning to experience this kind of supernatural purity, this kind of supernatural freedom. But you know you are presently enslaved to the bondage of selfishness and the bondage of lust and perversion. Today's a wonderful day because today is a day for you to repent. And I'm going to beg you, do not leave here today before you confess your sin to somebody. It doesn't have to be to me. But you find somebody with a name tag and you say, I need your help. I need you to pray for me. I need your help to move from perversion to purity. You say, well, Kevin, I, I, I don't think I can do that. It's too embarrassing. I did that once before and somebody made me feel bad. They, they, they judged me. Listen, we will not judge you. We're not going to judge you for walking in the light with your sin. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to shame you if you confess, hey, I'm struggling with sexual perversion in my life. I'm really struggling with this. We're not going to judge you. We're going to rejoice. We're going to rejoice that God's spirit is bringing you into the freedom of repentance. We're not going to condemn you or shame you for your sin. We're going to praise God that God's spirit has used the preaching of his word to re-engage you in the fight of purity all by the power of his grace. If you're trapped, it's because you, you're isolated. You're, you're living in the darkness. Satan loves darkness. He loves you, the fact that you're, you're too embarrassed to talk about your sin with somebody else. No, no, no. Bring that sin into the light. Confess it. And you will break Satan's power. And, this, and we, as God's body, we will pray for each other. We will encourage each other. We will bring gospel promises to each other and say, oh, Christian, keep fighting for purity. Keep renewing your mind with gratitude. Keep pursuing the love of Christ, for that's where joy is found. Oh, may we be a people that is always moving from perversion to purity as together we live in gratitude to God for his amazing love. Let's pray. So, Father, we want to thank you that you are a God of love. Unconditional love. We, we didn't ever deserve your love. We, 
Even to this day, none of us, no matter how long we've been a Christian, none of us has ever, ever, ever deserved your love. And yet you have proven your love for us by taking our place on the cross. Thank you for dying and rising again so that we might be made new. So that we, your children, could no longer be sons of disobedience, objects of your wrath, but instead we could be beloved children of love. Father, I pray that you would grant us the spirit of repentance. Our culture makes it so easy to justify impurity. But the consequences spiritually for those sins are so strong. Father, please purify us. Please set us free. Please give us the courage and the grace to talk and ask for help that the body might encourage each other and help one another build one another up in love. Purify us for the sake of your name, I pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you please stand as we teach you a new song? I'd encourage you to just listen and read the words on the first verse. But this is a very sweet and powerful song that helps us express the desire to put on, be renewed, put off, and with thanksgiving to the Lord. So let's sing. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Sing together. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your Son, gave me endless hope and peace. Praised with.
my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, Glorify your name through me. May God glorify his name through us as we continue to rest in his love, be thankful, and pursue a life of purity and love together. Just two quick announcements before we uh, pray our benediction and dismiss. First, just a reminder that today is a special opportunity. We're going to take an exit offering to bless the King family. So Dustin and Becca King, you heard their report earlier. Um, They're with us all the way until December in the parsonage, so they're going to be around here. But you heard their need for a vehicle. This is a legitimate need. We're trying to raise $25,000 to help them purchase a 4x4 vehicle that will work in the mountains of Ecuador. So please uh, give generously. Bless this dear family. Encourage them as you see them around uh, these coming uh, next couple months as they're here until the end of the year with us in the parsonage on their home assignment. So please be generous. And you can give online or just there's special boxes at the exits where you can put a check or cash to uh, give to them. Second thing is just, it's important sometimes to kind of review some of the things we do the same every week, because sometimes when we do the same things every week in our worship gatherings, it becomes kind of routine and mindless. So you'll notice every week we put up a slide. I'm going to ask them to put this slide up for us now again. This slide that says two-minute drill, seek to show hospitality. You've seen this slide before, right? We put this up at the end of every single service. Why do we do that? Well, we're trying to be intentional. And so I'm just, this is your reminder. I'm just giving a loving reminder that to be a church that builds itself up, we take the first two minutes after every service and we go hunting. Literally, that's what the word means in Romans. Seek to show hospitality. It means go hunting to find ways to show love to a stranger. So our two-minute drill every Sunday is that for the first two minutes, you try to talk to somebody you haven't talked to before, okay? Just introduce yourself. Hey, my name is Kevin. What's your name? How long have you been coming to Newcastle? I don't think I know you. Oh, that's right. We met. I, I met. I talked to you last Sunday. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. We'll be patient with each other. But if it happens 41 times, then, you know. But, but just get to know each other, love each other. And then after two minutes, go and talk to all your friends, Okay. But for the first two-minute drill, talk to somebody you don't know. So that we put that up every week, just kind of remind us to build up the body together. Now let's pray our benediction. From Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, and all those who have been made thankful 
by God's amazing grace, would say. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.